And over the radio came a call. If you haven't looked at the sun, go out and have a look at it now. Everyone stood and looked at this tiny sun and then started to run. You're listening to Fauna, a podcast by Zoos Victoria, where we take you backstage at Hillsfield Sanctuary, Melbourne Zoo and Werribee Open Range Zoo. We're in a heatwave. It's the first week of February 2009 and Melbourne has just endured three consecutive days above 43 degrees Celsius. The fertile paddocks around the picturesque Yarra Valley, an hour's drive northeast of Melbourne, are dotted with livestock and neatly stitched with vineyards. The top of the surrounding hills are covered in dense bush. But the country is parched. Fierce northwesterly winds have sucked all moisture from the land. It's bone dry. Um, but at the beginning of the week, I was actually more concerned about my, my trees and my, and my vegetable garden and that kind of stuff. And I remember that at that time, some of the local vineyard guys were telling me they were watering their vines 23 out of 24 hours just to keep them going because of the heat and the dryness. And we'd heard all of the warnings coming during the weeks before that this was going to be a terrible weekend for heat stroke and for, for some very out of control weather. We hear a lot about it's going to be a bad summer and I, I suppose we were all a bit, you know, oh, it's, it, this is just summer and this is how it's going to be this time and kind of all hit us pretty quick. On the morning of Saturday, February 7, Victoria is forecast to have its hottest ever February day. Hillsville Sanctuary opened as usual, but this would be no normal day. It was extremely hot. It was dry, it was mid-40s, really strong winds, and it felt like walking into an oven. Since Wednesday, fires had been burning in central Gippsland and on Melbourne's outer eastern fringe. But that was nothing compared to what was to come on the Saturday, a day we now call Black Saturday. And during the day, we saw people up fire towers, keeping an eye on different fires, and they would call over the radio. One after another, fires started to break out. And so we heard about fires in the distance, and then we heard about fires closer, and then we started to see smoke and fires on the nearby hills. Some of the roads were closed because they were on fire, and Maroondah Highway was starting to be closed by police and fire engines because the fires were on both sides, and you could hardly see from the smoke and cars were being pushed sideways by the wind. It felt like the apocalypse. I mean, it felt scary and it felt uncomfortable. And there was also this looming thought that we mightn't actually get very much warning and we may have to get out, and it could be quite a hot exit getting out. This is Rupert Baker. On Black Saturday, I was the senior vet at the Australian Wildlife Health Centre at Hillsville Sanctuary. And now I'm the general manager of life sciences at Hillsville Sanctuary. The, the concern was that their fire had crossed, crossed the Yarra and was approaching the bushland that's adjacent to the sanctuary. The bushland's 140 hectares and has got a lot of trees in there. So the concern was that if the fire started in there, it'd be really hard to control and would be a big threat to the species and the animals we have. So it was all very kind of eerie and, is this really happening? My name's Jerry Ross. On Black Saturday I was the veterinary hospital supervisor, which means I was the senior nurse here at the time. 
We had a point where we were having embers falling on the front lawn out the front of the hospital and that was, to me, the real, like, this is really happening, um, this is really scary. Looking back, it's almost like watching a movie. My name is Dr Marissa Parrott. I'm currently the reproductive biologist for Zoos Victoria, but at the time of Black Saturday, I was the mountain pygmy possum keeper, caring for the animals and conducting research into biology and reproduction. Hillsville Sanctuary is Zoos Victoria's bush campus, home to native animals, including some of the most critically endangered species in the state. And we were told, it's okay, just keep going about your work. And then in the afternoon, I remember I was down in the pygmy possum enclosures, which are very enclosed. So it's a shipping container that is specially designed to have lower temperatures that we can control to mimic the alpine area. And over the radio came a call. If you haven't looked at the sun, go out and have a look at it now. And so I walked outside and looked up along with all of the threatened species keepers down behind the scenes where we run our breeding programs. And all of us stood and looked up at this tiny sun that was just a little orange pinprick above us. And you could only see maybe 20 or 30 metres because of the smoke. And from the sky, black leaves and black bark and burning material was just raining down. So the fires were on three sides of us and were coming closer. And everyone stood and looked at this tiny sun and then started to run. I think our brains were starting to tick over with, right, what do I need to get done as quickly as possible? And how do I make sure I'm as ready as possible if we need to evacuate these animals which have very specific needs, like temperature or special food, but you still go into survival mode and go into a really quick mode of getting everything done so you're as prepared as possible. And so we ran back to our enclosures and we started to make sure we had everything, everyone fed, everything ready. We got a call from one of the other keepers saying that, um, could someone go and, and feed his birds and check his birds because his wife was home alone and she didn't have a car and the fire was coming for their house. And so another keeper and I went down and helped feed his birds, his orange-bellied parrots, um, so he could go home and, and help defend his home. Evacuating a zoo is easier said than done. The concept of evacuation was very interesting. So I'm Philippa Mason. I'm one of the part-time veterinarians here at Hillsville Sanctuary. I've been a part-time veterinarian for the last decade and was a part-time veterinarian at the time of the Black Saturday. During the Black Saturday fires, Philippa's two daughters, then aged one and three, were evacuated from their childcare centre. With the children, the greater wrong would be to let them die because they didn't evacuate. I mean, that's truly, truly, truly awful. So it's an easy decision. You evacuate them. If there's even the slightest, remotest chance, you evacuate them. This sat more comfortably with Philippa than the idea of evacuating the animals from Healesville Sanctuary. Evacuating the animals isn't as straightforward. When a species is listed as critically endangered, their gene pool is so shallow that every individual in the population is precious. So, when a threat like fire looms, who do you save first? I would say we'd have to move them all. That's my opinion. If you're going to move one, you move all. But there are some species that it's, it's going to pose a bigger risk to the individuals. I guess when I talk about the risk to animals, I mean death. If you move a dog or a cat to a different spot, 
the chances are they're going to survive that. They're, they're going to be okay with that move. If you move a human, they're probably going to be okay with that. Some of the birds that we are talking about are highly endangered and simply moving them can kill them with the stress. So the choices you have to weigh up are leave the vast bulk of the world's remaining birds here. So in the case of the orange-bellied parrots, we have more here than are actually out in the wild. So we either leave them here to potentially burn and lose the whole lot or we evacuate them to a safe area with the risk that we might kill some just due to the stress. And so the decision is very, very, very much, um, well, I would say not clear-cut. Some sanctuary staff had stayed overnight to protect their animals. On Sunday morning, others were on their way to help. And so I started to drive in, and I remember getting a phone call when I was about 20 minutes into my drive, and my boss at the time asking me to pull over and, and make sure I was safe, which I'd, I'd already done. And she said, the worst thing has happened. The fire is coming towards Healesville, and we're in a rescue and evacuation day. And if I didn't want to go, if I had uh, too many fears or I was too worried, I didn't have to go in. But if I was going in, I had to meet other cars in Lilydale and we would convoy in and the fire engines would keep an eye out for us and make sure we got in. As fire news rolled in on the Saturday, keepers had been preparing to evacuate. But now it was time to move. We started to capture the threatened species and we have Hamilton honey eaters here, which are um, the Bedlam of Victoria. And so that can be quite difficult to capture. They live in these big aviaries and you have to actually use what's called a mist net. So it's kind of like one of those large nets that people hear about floating around the ocean, you know, that you put up. They're like a drift net almost in the air. And so then the birds fly through it and get captured in this net. So with pygmy possums, it's a bit easier. Being nocturnal, you can close them into their little boxes, make sure they've got their food and water, and they're in a familiar place and are easy to move. With our Tasmanian devils, we had to actually catch them and put them into their safe transport boxes. And we had females with young uh, and females that were pregnant, so we had to be extremely careful. So it took a long time to get all of those animals together, but everyone moved beautifully as a team and helped each other out. And so in convoy, I was in the car or the truck transporting the devils. And in front of me were helmet honey eaters and mountain pygmy possums. And we travelled down Maroondah Highway again, past all of these burnt areas and places that were still on fire and drove towards Melbourne Zoo. And it was an amazing sight that met us. People who weren't even working that day, a large number of vets and keepers and managers and other staff had all heard we were coming and they'd all turned up en masse to help. And so when we arrived, we could move the devils out the back into safe holding areas and we put the pygmy possums into the vet hospital in a specially air-conditioned room that they'd made as cold as possible so we could get all of the possums nice and safe. Back at Hillsville Sanctuary in the vet hospital, staff were standing by for a flood of injured wildlife. But the impact of the fires was so severe that little more than a trickle arrived. The vast majority of animals in the areas that were burnt died. So one of the things for us was that intensity of fire, not very many things survived. So we only saw probably close to 200 animals at, at the sanctuary. 
So the patients that we were actually seeing in the initial periods were the koalas because they were elevated, so they were breathing in the smoke. The kangaroos and swamp wallabies started coming in a little bit later with burn injuries to their feet when they were able to be caught. The fires continued to burn around Hillsville for three weeks. There were times driving to work and seeing the fire up on the hill that I did think, yeah, should I, should I be going to work today? Like her colleagues, Jerry kept making the drive into work despite the ever-present threat of fire. There was one thing that kept her coming back. The animals. They needed help. They needed someone to see them and look after them, triage them, feed them, care for them, or at least alleviate suffering if that was what was required. So the last animal that we had in our care um, was an echidna. We actually had a a couple of echidnas that came through that time and they came in, they had their quills burnt but also the skin that then was under that. And so they required quite a lot of intensive care. An echidna with quills, you can't put a bandage on it. So um, it was quite challenging for us to think outside the box of how we were going to treat that particular patient and how we were going to treat the burn without a bandage but make sure that the animal was comfortable through that treatment as well was really quite hard. So the quills are made of like our fingernails so we were actually able to cut the quills back to skin level which allowed us to then clean the burn much more efficiently than trying to work in and around each of the little quills. We kept them in care for quite some time because we didn't want to release them back out into the wild with no quills because that's their protection when they're out in the wild. So when we first saw quills starting to redevelop, that was quite exciting for us. We knew that we'd made the right decision to continue on um, with the treatment of those guys. And then, yeah, releasing them back when they had all of their new quills was just amazing. There were lots of decisions that had to be made that were really hard, especially when we did have to euthanise lots of animals because of the extent of their burns, and that that can take its toll on staff as well. And, you know, sometimes you get to the, you know, you've seen X amount in a day and you get to the last one and you think, I really don't want to have to make this decision again. And... So it can, it can be a real struggle within yourself to make sure that you're making the right decision for the animal and not just for yourself as well. Just personally from the whole thing was, I remember we had some Tibetan monks come across and talk to us at the hospital about what had happened and they, they actually came over to pray for, you know, because they heard about what happened around the world. Rupert remembers one monk in particular... When he came over, I remember walking around with him and talking about what we'd done. And I talked with him about how we had to euthanise a lot of these animals because they were, had you know, smoke inhalation or ulceration to their eyes from fires and that type of stuff. And I remember him saying, oh, it was all compassion in action. You know? And that really stuck with me. So that was actually something we talked about as a team. The fact that what we were doing was a really compassionate thing because obviously going through that period of time compassion fatigue is also uh, a big possibility and that's when you know you see these things and you become a bit blasé to them and also that you 
actually run out of compassion yourself, either for yourself or for the people or you're dealing with. But yet having someone talk about that being a really beneficial thing from a welfare point of view and for the people we were meeting, yeah, that was really helpful. It was an intense time for all staff. We were very fortunate when we first moved to Hillsville. We found this wonderful place. It was a dream home. It was this lovely western red cedar home in the middle of the forest. It was exactly what we wanted. But my husband was always, he's probably even more pragmatic than I am, was always concerned about bushfire risk. When she heard the dire weather forecasts in the lead-up to the fires, Philippa took her family to stay with her in-laws. By the time they returned to the family home, embers were still glowing red. There was nothing left. So it's just that twisted metal surrounded by a moonscape of black trees and just dust. The bookshelf was the most interesting. The bookshelf was, um, if you can imagine, the bookshelf has fallen to the ground, obviously still intact and then burnt on the ground. They can still make out the outline of each of the books, but it was all ash. So the second you touched it, the whole thing just disintegrated in front of you. But before you disturbed it, you could see the perfect outline of the bookshelf. And that's probably my overriding memory of that day because we took my oldest daughter. She was three at the time, so I didn't have a humongous concept of what was going on, but what she did notice and what she could recognise was the bookshelf. And she said, Oh, Mum, my books. That nearly broke my heart at the time because, I mean, you know, we lose stuff. It doesn't matter so much we're adults, but for her to mourn the books was, yeah, makes your heart break a little bit. One hundred and seventy-three people were killed in the Black Saturday fires, and more than four hundred were injured. Philippa's house was one of more than two thousand homes destroyed. Turning up to work gave me something to do. There was nothing else to do, so it was practical. It was something I could give back. It was something I could do, and they they needed me. Yeah, so turning up to work was actually probably cathartic in a lot of ways. Because I worked part-time and because so much was going on in my own life, I was able to walk away from here, go on tend to my life and come back and deal with what was happening here at the sanctuary with all the sick and injured animals. My, my recurring memory is not a positive one, actually. It's really, it's quite, a, it's quite a guilty one. It's a sad one because of all the, the full-time staff, what they were going through. They were working really, really long hours constantly. They were seeing a lot of animals that were in extraordinary amounts of pain. I I can't make this nice. This isn't nice. They're in extraordinary amounts of pain. So we would have them anaesthetised, fully anaesthetised, to the point where you could do surgery on these guys, no problems. But you remove the bandages from the burns and they're still pulling back their legs. So the pain is so severe that I could I could have opened them up, done surgery on them, but I couldn't remove a bandage because they were in such pain. So the burn wounds were the burn wounds were horrific, and I think that the my overriding memory of the time was seeing seeing the rest of the staff get really yeah they got really it really wore them down. So yeah, but I didn't experience it myself. I was more seeing them. Sorry. Yeah, I really felt for them and I felt, I kind of felt, it's making it about me, but I felt guilty that I wasn't as 
traumatised by it, I suppose. Because they really were, they were exhausted. The people that I was working with were exhausted. Emotionally, physically. There, there was a lot of animals we had to euthanise, unfortunately. And, and, and often, weeks after we'd been treating them and putting them through these, these painful bandages, and then the burn wounds, you can't tell from the start how severe they are or how deep they are. And by the fourth week, you realise the burn wounds are so extensive that they're going to lose their feet. And you can't, you can't send a wild animal back to the wild with, as an amputee. It's just it's not humane. So you put them through all this and then have to euthanise them. And So unfortunately, my overriding memory or feeling from that whole time is actually quite sad. But, but for the people I've worked with and for the animals we've worked with... I remember the first bit of green I saw that regenerated. I had a, a bet going with my father-in-law. I said it would be back within the month. And he said, there's no way anything's coming back within a month. Three weeks. Three weeks it was till our first peppermint gum got a little bit of green on the outside of it. So a bit of epicormic growth. And so I won that bet, but I was more happy that the plants had survived. So the koalas that I took home, so we shared around the care of that and they were ones that we released back out into the wild quite some time afterwards. It wasn't in the same location that they were found because the trees hadn't rejuvenated well enough so we worked with the department which are called Del Whip these days to find an area that had eucalypt that these guys would eat and so I went out for that release. It was quite amazing um, and when we got there, they were calling out and, and carrying on and, and we were quite surprised at how vocal they were and it was almost like, thanks for letting us go and we're going and thank you, but actually we're good, we're happy to see the tail end of you. It was, yeah, it was quite amazing seeing them climb up those trees and be independent. Wanting to be able to get those animals back out there, I think that's ultimately what we're all here for, is we want to be able to rehabilitate them and release them back out into the wild. In the 75 years it had been open, Healdsville Sanctuary had never been evacuated. So, there were lessons to be learnt. We, we definitely learnt a lot about the day. I think with weather forecasts like that, we would be more organised, having a plan to evacuate either prior to or be able to do it very quickly. I think there are a lot of lessons learnt at different levels. As a keeper, for me, it was around my specific species I was working on, the mountain pygmy possum. We now have special evacuation folders with all of the information. So who are your priority individuals that need to be evacuated first? There's a checklist of every single individual so you can tick that animal off when it's safely in its box and you can then tick them again when they're safely into their transport vehicle and you can tick them again when they're safely at their next destination, their evacuation point. We've actually also looked at trying to figure out, and this is really you know triaging, trying to figure out which is the most important critically endangered species we have kind of hard. Which ones are the most important? Sometimes they're all so important. But you have to make a decision, well, what are you going to do in the first 15 minutes? And so which species is only found in captivity at this zoo? So 
they're the ones that we might want to look at. Knowing now the intensity of that kind of thing, you know, we make sure that we have no public on site on, on Code Red days. Believe it or not, on Black Saturday, you know, we were open in the morning on Black Saturday, and we actually had international tourists who came and said, I want to go through the sanctuary, you know, this is my one chance to have a look. And we were saying things like, you know, we don't think it's really a good idea, perhaps go to the beach today. We had a few people who said, look, no, I'm really here and this is what I want to see. And because we were open at the time and we hadn't made the decision to close and the fire front hadn't started yet, it was just a really hot day and it was just a risky day. And we didn't truly understand the nature of that risk. You know, we had some people here, but we closed pretty soon after when we started to realise what was going on. Mm. But now we would never let it happen in the first place. Hillsville Sanctuary now holds fire drills every October. So before the fire season... And part of that practice is when you go to the locations where we have these animals, we have pet packs ready. So we have a transport box ready. We have the screwdriver you might need to screw the the transport box closed on that, ready to go. We also have a a system where we have nominated vehicles. We've called the other zoos beforehand to find out what their capacity is to hold other animals and confirming that the kind of infrastructure we might need is available there. It's in the name. Healesville Sanctuary is a place of safety. It nurtures and protects some of Australia's most threatened species. The surrounding area is fertile and life-supporting. But that doesn't mean it's immune to devastation and destruction. So before Black Saturday, there was obviously a lot of concern for us around what was going on. When we heard on the radio, you know, the minister standing there behind the, you know, the Premier and they're talking about it's a code red and this is going to be a bad, catastrophic day. Um, you took it seriously. Having said that, we've got now a totally different understanding of what it was like. And we've learned a lot about what, what, what catastrophic means, I think. Yeah, I think it's important to still talk about it. One, from a perspective of our team understanding just the sheer amount of work that was involved in that and that there may come a day one day where we actually need to do that again so I think having some awareness around how it worked during that time and what the the staff actually went through is really important for us to talk through. Working and living in this area there's always that in the back of your mind that you know something might happen that's similar to Black Saturday and and that we have to be prepared for that. It's been nearly 10 years since Black Saturday but the memories of that apocalyptic weekend and the aftermath of one of Australia's worst natural disasters are present in the landscape. Disaster has visited the Yarra Valley and it could again. But come October, as bushfire season looms, locals are on alert. They know what catastrophe means. And they're prepared. Many thanks to Jerry Ross, Dr Marissa Parrott, Dr Rupert Baker and Dr Philippa Mason for sharing your stories with us. We really appreciate your time and generosity in looking back on such a difficult time. Fauna is produced by Bridie Smith and Beck Fari for Zoos Victoria, hosted by Annie Last. 
For more episodes and information on how to subscribe, head to zoo.org.au slash fauna. Zoos Victoria operates three campuses, Healesville Sanctuary, Melbourne Zoo and Werribee Open Range Zoo, and is a zoo-based conservation organisation fighting extinction to secure a future rich in wildlife. <laughs>